navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Great to see everybody. Thanks so much for coming out. Uh, if you have not been in part one, two, or three, either on a live uh, webinar like this or, or listen at uh, the Mentor ESQ podcast, uh, just to let you know how it works is I try and use this hour as you know best as possible. It's never enough to cover the subject matter, uh, and uh, that's certainly the case here with depositions. But I'm going to get through as much as I can, touch on things that I think are really important uh, and worth addressing in this series, and then just as a little heads up, um, as I've been mentioning, there's going to be, uh, after this series is done, I'll be doing some more series with the Academy specifically to specific cases. So it'll be a series on, you know, how to handle a medical malpractice case or a product liability case or an auto accident case. And in those series, we will have uh, an episode or a volume or a part on depositions where we'll really get into the weeds on specific cases, experts in those cases, specific questions and prep. Uh, but today, my goal in the next hour, and then hopefully you'll stick around with me for the Q&A is to um, cover some real important parts uh, about really three main areas we're going to discuss. Uh, the preparation uh, for the deposition, uh, how to handle yourself during the deposition, and then actually important things to think about while doing your questioning of a witness or defending a witness during the deposition. Uh, that's the three areas we're going to talk about in this hour. I've uh, included materials. Uh, I always try and pick materials, not just to fill pages, but that can be helpful to you. So I'll reference those as we go through this. But as you probably know already, I'm not big on sharing screens. I'd rather engage uh, and speak with you about the subject matter. So I'll mention what's in the materials and why I've included that as we go along. Lastly, I just want to reiterate how wonderful it's been to have all of you as part of a community. I feel that we've developed during the course of this series. Uh, I hear from a lot of you. Thank you for taking me up always on my offer, which always stands to reach out to me by email, phone, uh, everybody I get back to. I've had some great conversations, some great Zooms, uh, and good feedback back and forth. Uh, and that continues in the CLE. So today, uh, you've got the Q&A and chat feature uh, below. Uh, please feel free to chime in, ask questions, share your wisdom, your guidance, uh, any points that I may trigger in your mind that you want to share with everybody. Uh, we've all picked up a lot of great information from uh, from other lawyers like yourself attending, uh, other than just what I have to say uh, during these CLEs, uh, where we've learning about other things by people dropping it in the Q&A or the chat. So that's my preamble. Uh, let's get to it. Depositions. Like everything else in what we do as lawyers, preparation is key. Preparation, preparation, preparation. My mantra, you should know by now, it's really two things that we must do to be uh, successful attorneys. Be prepared and inform our clients. And that goes through with everything that I always talk about and everything that we do uh, as attorneys. And there's no more important time, uh, except for trial and everything else, I guess equally important as the deposition phase. And I saw a lot of you registered uh, for today. Obviously, we all uh, participate in depositions. Uh, even if you're not trying cases, chances are you're handling depositions. And after we get done with all the paperwork and the discovery on paper and all the things we've talked about in parts one, two, and three, 
now we've reached the time in litigating a personal injury case where you really feel like you're litigating. You are engaged, you have a witness, you have an adversary in person uh, or on Zoom, and uh, there's a, a back and forth, there's a, a, a confrontation perhaps, an adversarial environment. So you got to get geared up for it. You have to be prepared for it so that it goes as smoothly as possible. Just like trial, which we'll talk about in uh, the parts ahead in the series, um, it's all the behind the scenes work that you do that's going to make uh, your your deposition go as smoothly and as effectively as possible. So let's talk about preparation. Today I'm going to talk about really the two the two types of depositions you're going to be involved in. You're either going to be questioning a witness uh, or you're going to be defending a witness. I don't know if there's other terms, but defending is when someone's questioning your client. Whether you're plaintiff's lawyer, it's an injured party or family member being questioned by defense counsel, or whether you're defense counsel and you are representing a corporate witness or a driver of a, a vehicle who's being sued uh, or a witness in your case. Um, what I'm going to talk about today applies all, all around, okay? And the, so the two areas of preparation uh, I'd like to touch on today is preparing your witness and yourself when you are defending a witness, when it's your client or your witness about to be deposed by your adversary. And then there's preparing yourself uh, for questioning uh, an adverse witness, whether it's a lay person or an expert. Okay, so first let's talk about preparing uh, yourself and the witness when you are defending a case. So many of us will come across that when it's our client, the injured party of your plaintiff, or if you're uh, representing someone who's being sued uh, and it's a lay person generally is what we'll talk about. Um, experts will get into more detail in future CLEs, but I will touch on that here and certainly in the Q&As we can get into it. So first thing is never ever leave the preparation of a witness to the day of or the morning of. I've seen it all the time, uh, certainly pre-COVID, when uh, a lot of depositions are done at courthouses. Uh, you know, a lawyer will meet with the client that morning, you know, sit outside or sit in the room. Or even now, a lot of times people will meet at the court reporting facilities uh, and um, prep their witness right before the deposition. I highly, highly uh, suggest that you do not do that for many reasons. Um, it's important that you schedule a time in advance to prepare your witness. Uh, it is, a, it is a, a standard rule in my firm that the minute we know a deposition's coming up, we send letters out, we reach out to the client, we find a time to prepare them in advance for the deposition. Now, why do we do it in advance? Several reasons. Um, first of all, it gives you time to really flush everything out with your client so that if there's an issue that comes up when you're flushing it out and we'll talk about some some issues that could come up um, you have time to deal with it you could get a game plan you could do some homework if you have to uh, before the actual deposition you're not running into the room next door to face the music when you come across a problem Secondly, it gives you time. You're not on the clock. You can spend as much time as needed um, to address issues. Um, and those issues could be a problem that you find that comes up, or it could just be an issue with regard to, you know, how your witness is going to respond to certain liability questions, how your witness is going to respond to certain damages questions. 
Many times when I'm preparing a witness, they're not doing so well on articulating um, how the injuries impacted their life. So I work with them in the preparation and I tell them to think about it and talk with their loved ones about how they've been different and think about it and why it's important to uh, be able to speak about it at the deposition. So timing uh, is important that you give that buffer zone. You give time to, um, to absorb what comes out of the preparation with the witness. Okay. So always try and prepare in advance. And also sometimes you don't have great witnesses and they may need more than one prep session. So you want to find that out. Uh, I've had clients that I've had multiple prep sessions with. So we schedule it for once we work on it. No, you can't answer like that. You'll lose your case. I'm going to ask you again, and uh, then we're going to come back next week. We're going to try this again. So if you have a client or a witness that uh, may be a little bit uh, more difficult to prepare, you're going to want that extra time. Plan your preparation of your witness in advance. Now, I'm going to go through how I prep my witnesses uh, to share with you what goes on uh, behind the scenes with me and my clients. And again, like everything else I talk about in my CLEs, you know, many of you do this and do it quite well and perhaps better than I do already. But if you take away just something that may help you or, or make your prepping better for depositions, that's what I'm here for. That's the goal of all this. So when I prep a witness, the first thing I like to do is ask them if they've ever been in a deposition. I explain what it is, what the process is, and I get pretty granular. This is the informed part of informing your client. I explain to them, look, it's going to be right in my office, right in the conference room, right next door, or it's going to be on Zoom, just like we're talking right now, but a few more windows are going to pop up. I tell them if there's going to be one lawyer or more than one lawyer, I let them know there's going to be a court reporter there who's going to take everything down. I really go over what's going to happen. And if there's more than one adversary as a, as a lawyer who's going to be there, I explain they're not going to be firing questions at you, you know, back and forth. One will take the lead. The other will follow up. Clients and witnesses will take comfort and be better prepared when they know what to expect. All right. You don't want to just walk them into a room where they're facing, you know, lawyers and a court reporter. Explain to them that although it's a formal proceeding, it's not court. There's no judge. If they need to take breaks, they can. If they need to use the bathroom or stretch their legs, explain all that to them right away. Get them comfortable understanding what a deposition is. All right. Then I like to go over ground rules. I have ground rules. Everybody that's on this uh, webinar should have their own ground rules that they're explaining to the witness of how they like depositions to run, of how they like their witnesses to handle themselves. So you can be a unified team when you get into that room and your witness is about to be questioned and is questioned for, for several hours. So here are my ground rules. I tell my witness, except for a specific instance I'll tell you about, short answers. Don't give long-winded answers. You give long-winded answers, the lawyer's gonna pick up on something you say and run with it. Just answer the question. I like to give an example. I say, suppose I ask you what time you got up this morning and you tell me, I normally get up at 6 a.m., but I didn't wanna be late because it's a long commute to get to your office, so I got up at 5 a.m. today. Wrong answer. The right answer is 6 a.m. If you're asked a question, what time did you get up? Answer that time, 6 a.m. No color commentary, all right? Short answers all the time. Listen to the question and pause before you give an answer. Think to yourself. I explained to them the importance of a pause. 
The reason is to keep a clean record so the court reporter can get the question and the answer. The reason is it allows the witness and client to think before answering, which is always important. And it allows me the opportunity to jump in and object if there's a reason to object. So you need to work on that with your client during the prep. Explain to them that we talk over each other in normal day life, but in a deposition, pause, then give the answer, okay? You can tell them what your philosophy is on objecting, and I'll talk about that a little further uh, in today's uh, session. But I personally, I don't like to object during my client's depositions. It interrupts the flow. 99% of questions are appropriate to be asked anyway. They may not be the best question. They may, they may technically be improper, but you want to get in and out of there. You don't want to argue. You don't want to mess up the record. You don't want to increase your page count because it ends up costing you more. So you save your objections for when you really need it. I understand sometimes lawyers want to you know, show their clients that they're fighting for them and they're objecting and they're obstructing. Look, I can just tell you how I uh, choose to act in my depositions. I think it makes for a much smoother and more professional environment to not object much. But when I do object, I have a method and it's called the hand. And I didn't originate this. Um, I learned this as a young lawyer. I was thrown into a, a medical malpractice deposition where I was doing the questioning and uh, an old school defense uh, medical malpractice lawyer uh, was doing this with his witness. I'd ask a question and he'd put up his hand literally like this and block, put it right up in front of his uh, client, the doctor, the physician next to him. And he'd say, objection, Mr. Smiley, give me the basis of the objection. And not until he, we sorted it out, he then dropped the hand. You can answer. And it frustrated the hell out of me. Every time I saw the hand go up before he even said anything, I was like, oh, again with the hand. And it threw me off my game a little bit, to be honest. But I thought it was effective. And I use it. And what I do is if I'm going to object, I put up my hand and literally in front of my client and I tell them that I will do this. And I'll say, if my hand goes up, you zip it. Don't say anything until my hand goes down. The hand gives me an opportunity to do what I have to do to object and say it. The hand goes down. You can speak. It's a good technique. Feel free to use it. Uh, and I explain to them that's what I do. So this way, when we go into the deposition, they're not wondering why I'm not objecting more. They understand my philosophy. They can feel comfortable and they know when the hand goes up to be quiet. All right. You can let them know the natural flow of questions. Uh, for those of us who have done thousands or hundreds or even dozens of depositions, you know there's generally a natural flow, right? Whether it's a plaintiff and an accident case being questioned uh, or a witness on the defense side, it's usually chronological. It usually starts off with background about the person, their education. It gets up to, you know, the time of the accident, what happened at the accident, then what happened after the accident, uh, and then damages and questions about treatment. And usually ends, at least with the plaintiffs being deposed with their talking about what they can no longer do, that they used to be able to do, pain and suffering, damages questions. So I explain to them that's going to be the flow for the most part is what to expect. I tell them it'll usually be two or three hours, could be longer, could be shorter. They like to know. Again, inform your client. This is all part of the prep process before you even get into the meats, the meat and potatoes of what they're, they're, they're going to be asked. All right. So have that conversation. Let them know what to expect. Tell them that it's at the end of the deposition when you get to the damages questions, questions like, are you in pain? Are there things you can't do anymore? That's when you can break my rule 
and open up the floodgates. Talk about it. I explained to them the importance of talking about the impact that their injuries had on their life and to give examples of it, to know that that question is coming and they want to be prepared to give a good answer, not to be stoic, not to be machismo. Sometimes I have big construction, you know, macho uh, clients that don't want to complain. Ah, I'm getting along, you know, even if it's the worst injury you could imagine. You want to explain to your clients, this is where they have to let it out. Why? Because when the insurance representative or defense counsel is reviewing the transcript or writing a report, and I tell my client, and you're being asked about how this has affected you, and you say, oh, I get along, I do okay, then it makes it really hard for me when I go to negotiate a settlement and my adversary says, listen, your client said they're fine now. Uh, you need to let it out. You need to fill pages with what's wrong with you. Okay. This is your time. It's really your day in court. And if you can express yourself, you may not most likely won't have to go to court and it'll help me to help you get your case resolved. Uh, again, those are things sometimes they have a hard time with. You want to give them ideas of how to prepare themselves and to speak with their loved ones who can give them some feedback if they don't even see how they've changed uh, before the deposition and from the time of the prep. All right, so go over all of that when you're preparing your client. Um, then you get into the meat and potatoes. You talk about your specific case with them, what they're going to be asked. You go through the photos, if there are any, for any exhibits that are going to be there. Uh, before you're prepping your client, you need to thoroughly evaluate your case. Look at all this paper discovery that you've received or have exchanged. Look at all the medicals. You need to be fully familiar with that case, with everything that's been exchanged that we've talked about in part one, two, and three leading up to this. So, you as the attorney can focus on what you think uh, is really important for this witness in this deposition. I like to tell my clients, listen, you can't do anything wrong. All I need you to remember is that you saw what caused you to fall. All I need you to remember is that you stopped at the stop sign uh, before and you looked both ways. You need to say that. All I need you to remember is fill in the blank. Most cases, there will be something really crucial, either on liability or on damages. That's what you want to zero in on uh, when you're prepping this witness. You want to zero in on potential weaknesses or problems, either in the record or in a prior statement or in uh, what you're finding in the discovery or in photographs. And this is their chance to explain themselves. And you need to prepare them to explain it in the best light as possible. Now, you cannot ever... Uh, suggest something for your client to say that is not true. You can't uh, let your client lie at a deposition or perjure themselves. You can't even be a part of anything like that. So what do you do if you have uh, a situation that is really tough to deal with? You tell the client, listen, you have to be truthful, but you don't have to volunteer it, okay? So what happens if you run into a situation that you're worried about, a prior crime? Okay, for example, you need to ask every witness, have they ever been convicted of a crime? You need to ask every one of your witnesses, I don't care if they're the sweet little old lady that you can even imagine, you need to say, have you ever been convicted of a crime? Because uh, they're going to probably ask you that and you need to be prepared. Um, you want to know. You don't want to be surprised. Your client gets asked that question, they say, yeah. You're going to start sweating before the follow-up questions. You need to know. Was it a misdemeanor? Was it a felony? Um, because misdemeanors don't count. They're not allowed to ask about that. And if it is a felony, what are they allowed to ask your client about that felony? 
Okay. You need to know this. We'll talk about this at another time, but you need to find out the bad stuff. So when the question gets asked, you can prepare the witness for how to handle it and you can be prepared for how to handle it. Okay. So go over any weak spot, any weak liability, any weak causation issue and damages or prior injuries. Um, those are all the things you really want to focus on. And then you tell them, look, as far as your background and your education and every doctor's visit you went to, you don't need to memorize that. They have all the records. Do the best you can. You can approximate. You don't need to give exact dates. Put them at ease. Focus the client on the important part. And then your client will be prepared. Okay. You always ask your client, do they have questions for you? Is there anything you're worried about that could come out? Now's the time to tell me so we can deal with it. All right. About this case or anything in your back in your past. Let me know. Have you ever filed for bankruptcy? Uh, ever been in court, litigated, all of that stuff. So you need to spend time. It's going to take you a minimum of an hour, a minimum of an hour to do a proper prep of your client and your client should be prepared. It's going to make uh, their deposition go more smoothly uh, and it's going to be better for your case and for that client. Okay. Um, that's generally what I want to talk about in preparing your client. We're already almost halfway through the hour. For those of you joining us via podcast, the first attendance verification code for today's course is P-O-D, as in pod, eight, four, two. Again, that's P-O-D, eight, four, two. Thank you, Michelle. I took a quick look at some of the questions uh, that were posted, and thank you, as always, for those. I'll be uh, addressing those in the last half hour because I'm quickly going to run out of the remaining half an hour here. But there are some questions about the hand method. Uh, specifically, uh, do I use the hand method if I just want to note an objection? Sometimes not. Um, but I generally only use the hand method when I just want to make sure the witness doesn't say something in response to that question. So if it's just a quick objection, you can answer. I don't always use it when I'm objecting, but you know, if, if I'm objecting me personally, it's usually for a real reason and I don't want the witness to give an answer. So I will put the hand up. Also, yeah, it works great in remote depositions. You see my hand, stop talking because they're going to see me on the screen. So I'll say, you see my hand go up like this, stop talking. So you can do it that way. Uh, there's some questions about misdemeanors, felonies, how to handle that, someone taking the fifth. Uh, I'm going to touch base on all those uh, at the Q&A, so stay tuned for that. Let's talk about preparing yourself to question a witness. Now, I'm going to touch on some things that will apply to all witnesses, but there's definitely a higher level of prep preparation that will go into preparing for an expert witness than a lay witness, which I'll get to um, a little bit later. Let's get into preparing generally for lay witnesses and not an expert such as a physician or a hired professional expert like an engineer or a biomechanical person or an economist or something like that. So first thing is before you prepare for a deposition, you want to have the right notice served for that deposition. And so I've enclosed in the materials um, two really good notices when you have a corporate defendant uh, or a company as a defendant, anything other than an individual, okay? This can be in a premise liability case. This can be in a construction accident case. It could be in any uh, type of case where it's not really a individual versus an individual like in a car accident. When you are suing a company who's a defendant, um, you don't want to let your adversary pick who to produce. Because how many times have you shown up at a deposition? They say, oh, we can pick who to produce. Uh, and we're going to produce this witness from corporate office. And you ask them about the circumstances of the accident, and they know nothing, right? Then you waste your time, you have to go through and get another witness. How do you deal with this? Well, 
Previously, it was really hard in state court, uh, but in federal court, there's under Rule 30, Rule 30B6. And I gave an example in materials of a 30B6 notice. Uh, effective just in the last few months is uh, the equivalent, basically the equivalent rule to 30B6 uh, for serving a notice on a company defendant corporate witness. And it's a uniform uh, rule of the court, uh, Rule 202.20-D. I've attached that rule in the materials as well. And I didn't craft a notice because frankly, it just I think went into effect uh, like two months ago and I haven't used it yet. I can't wait to do it in my state cases, uh, but you can craft it the same way is the 30B6 notice I attached from a federal case. And the gist of these notices is that you put detailed point by point, number by number, areas that you want answers to. Okay. And it then shifts the burden to the corporate or company defendant to produce one witness, two witnesses, three, four, as many witnesses or as few witnesses as are necessary to answer and be prepared to answer those questions that you've elicited in your notice. And uh, if they don't have personal knowledge, that they do homework and speak to the appropriate people in their company to get that information and to provide that upon questioning at the deposition. And if the defendant fails to comply with that notice and produces a witness that doesn't have knowledge of those points that you've listed and who has not looked into um, getting the answers to those questions, then the defendant can be sanctioned. Uh, or defense counsel could be sanctioned for failing to properly comply with that notice. Uh, and so take a look at the notice that I've included, the 30B6 notice. It was in a case I had in federal court. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I've referenced it in some of the prior parts to this series. It was a bad uh, fire uh, where there was a serious uh, injury and a death in a, in a building. And uh, it was federal court and there was just... Uh, me and a co-plaintiff and uh, five, I think, defense firms, all very good attorneys. Uh, I did a 30B6 notice. I wanted to know a lot of stuff about the building, about the fire codes, about who installed the fire detectors. There was a lot I wanted to know, put it all in the notice. And then I've attached in the materials the actual deposition, uh, the witness they produced in response to that notice. It's over 250 pages. It's redacted. So I'm not naming names of anybody, but I can tell you all the lawyers in that deposition were seasoned lawyers. Um, and it's a really good deposition to look at to see how to lay the foundation. Uh, we had a letter drafted to go to the federal magistrate after the deposition uh, showing that uh, their conduct would be sanctionable. Uh, we didn't ask for sanctions. I'm not a fan of asking, but it was about getting them to produce the right witness who did have answers. It's a really good tool. It's a really good way to get information. It's a fantastic discovery tool. So the proper way to prepare for a deposition where you're going to be asking for a witness from a company and not an individual, use a 30B6 in federal court notice, use the 202.20D notice in state court. Do it right as in any deposition you're preparing for, you need to review your case. You need to workshop it. Workshop it either by yourself, with your colleagues, your partners, your associates. As I've said, if you have no one, call me. Okay, that's I'm sort of the backup. And I'll workshop any case with you anytime. But you need to know why you are choosing to question this witness. And every witness, there's a reason you want to question that witness. And it may be multiple reasons or one or a combination. 
you want to get more discovery. Depositions can also help peel away the layers to get more information that you want to find out in your case. So you want to ask questions that'll lead to more discovery. You may want to knock out the witness because this witness may have said something really bad for your case in a statement and you want to grill them on it and knock it out or weaken it by asking them questions about what they've said and what they're why they've said things or what they really observe. So sometimes we call that a knockout witness. Uh, sometimes you want to just lock them into something. Okay. So you know what, um, when it comes time for trial, uh, what you want to be able to use at trial. If you know you have certain elements in your case that you need to prove and you could satisfy those elements from one of these witnesses, then go into that deposition with the goal of getting an answer to that question that will give you an element so you, you can uh, meet your burden at the time of trial. Whatever it is that you may need or want, you have to identify that and go into your deposition of that witness with a game plan, okay? Don't just go in and ask questions. You have to have a game plan for what you want to ask. And the way you have that is by reviewing your case, by reviewing all the records, sitting down with all that discovery you've received, going through every page, highlighting stuff, putting question marks, making notes. It's a lot of homework that goes in before a deposition, even in an auto case, even in a simple case. Do your homework, find out what you're gonna to need to prove at trial or disprove and be prepared. And then once you know what you wanna do and you've reviewed all the documents and you've made your notes, make an outline. You must have an outline for everything you do. I have an outline for this CLE. Look, I mean, I've got stuff written down on pages and I have like things in red and circled to look down at. And everything we do, you need to have an outline to know what you want to talk about, where you want to go. Um, usually by doing the outline, it'll stay up here, uh, but you need to have it to look down to, to, to reference. And certainly in a deposition, I use a legal pad. I have point headings, uh, background, uh, resume, curriculum vitae, which is a resume of a professional witness, um, education, employment. You may want to identify uh, defendants and ownership and ask all the questions about who owns things, who supervises, uh, who their supervisor is at work. Um, have different headings and write bullet points of what you want to ask. Then go through all the documents and the things that are important to review with that witness and have those ready, have those organized pre-mark them as exhibits. And then what I like to do on my legal pad is when I get to something that I want to show the witness as an exhibit, I write it in red, a go to exhibit one photograph of intersection. Then later on, go to photo two uh, exhibit of, you know, after intersection, whatever it is, go to police report statement given by witness. And you, it has to be your outline has to have an organization of what you want to ask. You have to highlight the exhibits. You have to have your arrows to it. You have to have them in a nice pile or scan them or have them up as PDFs for Zoom. Everything I'm talking about, if you organize it properly, you can do it successfully in um, person and at Zoom. And frankly, I've been finding it's even better at Zoom uh, because what I do is I organize everything. I make sure it's all saved as a PDF. Um, I'll highlight stuff on the PDF. I'll have the page number, like a PDF page number. So if it's a 300 page document, um, I'll, uh, I'll know which page of the PDF. So you open up the PDF and at the top it says one slash 300. You can just type in 
25, take you to page 25. So I'll write on my outline, PDF page 25. Then I'm talking to the witness. I do a share screen. I have my PDFs all lined up, ready to be looked at. I click on the one that I want to look at. I go to page 25. I do a share screen. Everybody sees it that's on the Zoom. So instead of having to have multiple copies uh, to pass around to everybody, which you should do if it's an in-person deposition, make sets of all your exhibits before you show up. Make sure you have a set for the court reporter and for every uh, attorney that's part of the case that's going to be there. Pass them all around. Otherwise, that delays the case. Oh, can I see that? I want to see that first. I want to review that. So with a Zoom deposition, if you organize properly, uh, you can easily have everything done. Uh, by way of an example, I did a deposition a couple of weeks ago of a uh, defendant physician, very serious medical malpractice case. And the record that I needed to go through was about 2,500 pages of an inpatient hospital chart. And what I did to prepare for that deposition, amongst other things, was created a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet that had the PDF page number of the chart. It had the date, the time of the entry. It had where either this witness or other important entries and who made it, a column there, uh, and then a quote of what was said. So I had that whole spreadsheet. And so when I was, I put the whole chart up on the share screen, I said, all right, I'd like to draw your attention to PDF page 1,252. Pull it up on the screen. Do you recognize this? I want you to draw this. Uh, I want you to see in this hospital chart, the highlighted paragraph here. Uh, is that your note? So there are ways to get organized in advance that will make things go smoothly. It'll help you focus on your questioning where you're not frumfering around with pages and being disorganized. You have to be organized, and this takes time. You just have to plan well in advance. Uh, for the expert depositions, you're going to have to plan a lot longer in advance than some of the more simpler uh, lay depositions. But whatever it is, you have to plan. Uh, get your exhibits organized. Have uh, your outline for you pointing to where they're going to go uh, and make sure that you have uh, a smooth presentation to your deposition, just like what we'll talk about uh, in future CLEs when you're doing your, um, your direct examination at trial or cross-examination. You're using exhibits. You're questioning a witness at trial. It's got to be smooth, like a choreographed, uh, beautifully uh, synchronized um, uh, performance. Okay. And that's when you get the best focus from you and the witness that you can really follow up. So get organized. All right. Now um, let's talk about being at the deposition. You've prepared yourself. You've got your notes to question it. You're ready to defend uh, your client. And here comes the big day. Uh, you're, you're nervous or you're not nervous. You shouldn't be nervous if you're well-prepared. That's one of the benefits of being prepared. Um, I went to bed last night. I had my outline for today. I got nothing to worry about for the CLE. I had my outline. I was prepared. Now, if I didn't write a note and I decided I wanted to just wing it in front of a thousand lawyers, that probably wouldn't be too smart and I'd be nervous and unprepared. 
but I am prepared and that makes it easier for me to be able to speak with you and focus on what I want to talk about. And I can just look down quickly to, to move on to the next point. So you're not going to be nervous. You show up at the deposition and this is the first adversarial setting. And it's often the first time that you really get to see your adversary in person, communicate. Um, and that's depositions, the first one, and then moving on is really where the case takes on its life. That's where you get to see, oh, this was a cool adversary. Oh, defense counsel is a pretty cool person. Defense counsel, a plaintiff's lawyer is a decent, decent lady. You know, we, I think we can get along well. Um, you can have some camaraderie. And again, being adversarial doesn't mean you have to be uh, abrupt or rude or difficult, you can be sweet as pie and still do a good job. Um, many of you have been kind enough to reach out to me uh, during the course of this series and talk about how you're enjoying the series, thank you. But a lot of people are saying that when I talk about, as a profession, you know, things that we can do to help each other out, that that's really uh, has been striking a, a good uh, tone and uh, resonating. And so no more is it the case than at a deposition where we as a profession need to work, need to work to be more cordial to each other, to understand that we're all in that room to do our job, to represent our clients and be respectful of that, all right? Um, the plaintiff's lawyer is not just the greedy plaintiff's lawyer who's trying to, you know, get through it and get paid, all right? That's not always the case. And the defense lawyer is not only always the cold-hearted defense lawyer who's just sticking up for the insurance company and trying to make the plaintiff out to be a bad guy, all right? Those are extreme cases. The reality is, is that most lawyers on both sides realize it's a case, realize it's going to get resolved somehow, and we all can help each other get to that point, okay, in many ways. And one of the ways to do that is in a deposition. Make it easier for your adversary by making sure they have what you want to go through in advance so they can look at it. Don't surprise them unless you really need to, okay? If they want time to look at something, give them time. Give courtesies to each other, okay? Um, the courtesies and the rapport starts usually at these in-person depositions by Zoom or um, or in person. And uh, my partner, Jason Friedman, always reminds me, you can never read tone into emails, all right? And sometimes you're exchanging emails or phone calls and the lawyer seems to be difficult on the other side, but then you're at the deposition and you realize they're not that bad. I can work with this person, all right? Have conversations, take some time during the breaks or when you step outside to, you know, meet your adversary. Say, hey, you know, we got this case together. You know, where are you seeing it? You know, this is where I'm seeing it. It's a really good time to do that and to be cordial. And always be nice uh, until you're, you're pushed to where maybe you can't be as nice. But you need to go in with the attitude that you're going to be nice at the deposition. And don't, just don't be obstructive for the sake of it because I see that all the time. All right. Now, one of the things we need to be aware of that should help that is what we call the usual steps. All right. Let's talk for a moment about the ground rules, the rules of engagement as a deposition. In the materials I've included, the usual steps for a federal from a federal deposition I did and the usual steps from a state court. How many of you have shown up to a deposition when the court reporter turns counsel? Is this by uh, step, by court order? Yeah, order, compliance conference. Usual steps? Yeah, usual steps. And then you move on to the deposition. I guarantee you, 
less than half of the people, probably less than 90% of the people on this webinar have ever actually read through the usual steps. Well, now you have them, or at least a sample of them. Read through them. Um, you'll see that the, one of the most important things in all the usual steps is that objections are preserved. If you don't object, you're not waiving anything at trial. You don't have to object to things. The only thing that's not preserved is an objection to form. It doesn't mean you lose the right to object to the question for bad form. You just lose the right to stand up at court and say objection to form. You preserve the right to everything. Um, and the only thing you really need to object to is to form. And that's to run, make a clean record. And form, as a refresher, is really when it's an improperly formed question. For example, what time did you get up and what did you have for breakfast? Objection form, because it's two questions in one. They just need to be broken up, okay? You can't ask two questions in one. That's improper form. Other than that, all of your objections are preserved. You do not need to worry that if you miss something and fail to object, oh my God, that's gonna come in at the time of trial, I forgot to object. The usual steps say it, even I believe the CPLR and all the other statutes out there uh, say that. So. You know, most of the time objection, objections during a deposition should just be to make sure it's clean. The form, the record may not be as clear because the question, the way it was asked is wrong, uh, improper form. But otherwise, you do not need to object all the time. I had a federal court case where I was questioning an expert witness and defense counsel objected to probably 95% of my questions. And every objection, objection, form, irrelevant, argumentative, objection, form, argument, irrelevant, you know, everything. And I said to the guy, you know, we've stipped that all your objections are preserved. I am saying on the record now on videotape, I will waive any objection I have at the time of trial to your failure to object to something. You don't need to object to every question of mine, okay? Let's move on. And he said, no, I'd like to object. You know, what can I do? But read the steps so you don't need to object, all right? The other thing as far as rules of engagement is that you're not supposed to have speaking objections. You're not supposed to coach a witness. When I ask a witness a question, my adversary can't jump in and say, only if you remember. Do you remember? Did you have that? Was it here? Was it there? Okay, you can answer it. That's impermissible under almost all of the rules in federal court and in state court. All right. You cannot direct a witness to not answer a question, except under extremely rare circumstances, such as privilege. All right. They, you know, they don't have to answer questions that are privileged, certain privilege, like speaking with your lawyer, content of those discussions, spousal privileges. All right. Uh, Self-incrimination. There was a question about taking the fifth. I'll talk more about that in the Q&A. But it's extremely rare that uh, you will be justified in directing a witness not to answer, all right? So what do you do if you're in a situation where your adversary is being obstructive, keeps asking you to rephrase, keeps directing the witness not to answer, all of that? Um, you make a, a clear and concise statement on the record saying your injections are inappropriate. Uh, if you're, are you directing your witness not to answer and not answer my question? And then make them say yes on the record. Say, are you aware that that's against the rules and our steps? Uh, see what they wanna say. Are you aware that's against our compliance conference order signed by Judge Silver? Okay, which I will read to you says, under no circumstances are you to direct a witness not to answer except for privilege, um, or uh, palpably irrelevant, uh, things like that. 
you know, make them say on the record that they stand by their choice to direct their witness not to answer. I've enclosed, by the way, language from a, a, a preliminary conference order in a MedMal case that I have from Judge Silver. Most of you know Judge Silver. And in that order, it says what I've enclosed the materials, you know, no speaking objections, no coaching, no pulling your client out of the room. By the way, that's not allowed either. You can't pull your client out of a room to go over stuff with them during a deposition. Okay. So there's a lot of stuff that we all do normally that is not permissible. And when you run into a situation, what I encourage you to do is to be brief in your uh, statement on the record, be brief in your argument with counsel. You are never going to agree. You need to agree to disagree, be respectful, say that's not my interpretation of the rules. If you have an adversary that's jumping in, say counsel respectfully, can you please stop giving speaking objections? It's against the rules. And I ask that you please refrain from doing that. Let the adversary say whatever they want, say, well, please stop from doing it. Usually calling them out early on, that stops it. But otherwise, make the record. If you can't get an answer you want, mark it for a ruling. And don't be afraid to get a ruling right then and there. Always, always, always bring the phone number of the judge on your case, the chamber's phone number, the courtroom phone number. Bring it with you and be ready to use it. Don't, don't, don't bluff about marking for a ruling. Don't wait. Tell the lawyer, you know, I'm going to get the judge on the line if you're going to keep doing this and then do it. Wait for a break. You can take a break right then and there and call. Um, what I like to do sometimes is I'll mark everything for a ruling. And then towards the end of the deposition or at a lunch break, I'll say, all right, I'd like to call the judge now uh, to get a ruling on all these questions you blocked or you refused the witness to answer. Um, I'd ask if you want to reconsider your prior objections. Uh, before we call the judge. Sometimes defense counsel will reconsider when they see you're about to call the judge. Otherwise, call the judge. You usually get the judge or the law secretary on the phone. I 99% of the time, I'll get somebody on the phone and they'll admonish your adversary and make them let the witness answer the question. So do it. Don't be shy. You have to be uh, familiar with all the rules um, my partners, we all, we bring copies of court deposition rules of engagement. You know, we, we bring everything we can. We bring the PC orders. We call lawyers out on it and we make a record because I can tell you in a case that if Judge Silver is saying you can't do this and I have someone called out, you're aware Judge Silver said you're not allowed to do this. You still want to do this? And they say, yeah. What do you think is going to happen when we get Judge Silver on the phone or when Judge Silver sees that transcript or any judge for that matter? So that's how you handle those situations. So I've got six minutes left. As I said, time's running fast. We'll get to the Q&A. Um, there's lots of things about rules of engagement, um, but be respectful. Know what you're entitled to ask. Um, know how it works. Now, you can bend the rules a little bit, okay? There is some gamesmanship to it. Your job is ultimately to defend and protect your case and your client. If I have a client that won't shut up, that keeps giving long-winded answers despite every prep I've done and everything I've said, you've answered the question, everything, sometimes I'll drag that client out of the room, okay? And if my adversary wants to put a statement on the record, Mr. Smiley, I attended your CLE. You know you're not allowed to take your client out of the room, and you just did that. Don't do it again, Mr. Smiley. I don't appreciate that. I'll say, I understand. Thank you. Let's move on, all right? Sometimes you just got to take one for the team if you see there's a real problem. You have to use your judgment. You may get, you may have to come to the wrath of a judge or law secretary or not, but you need to find that line. All right. Again, 
when extreme measures need to be taken, you have to be prepared to take them. It's important. If it's important enough for your case, um, you'll see in the transcript I've enclosed that uh, the defense lawyer for this witness, he was, uh, he was in full battle mode, okay? And he was objecting left and right and blocking things left and right. We were very well seasoned uh, lawyers on the other side. Some of my co-defense counsel were on like the advisory committees to rule 30B6 federal rules. And they're putting on the record on video, reading from the rules, why you can't do this. And he's like, yeah, well, I'm doing it anyway. I'm familiar with the rules because he felt he needed to go there. So um, just, just be, be forewarned and do what you have to do. Right, again, there will be future CLEs where I will get into the weeds on how to specifically prepare specific questions, advanced techniques for depositions, all that stuff. Uh, keep an eye out. You'll hear about future CLEs. That'll be part of a series on that. Um, but again, for now, um, I just have a few more things. If you got to go, uh, go. But uh, hang in there with me if you can. So a few things. When you're questioning a witness, listen to the answer. Really listen to their answer. Don't just follow your outline and script. Don't be afraid to go off course. Many times an answer will contain something that really is worth your following up on. So really pay attention. If you're losing focus where it's, you're just having a hard time and you're trying to get through it, take a break, have a sip of water, regroup, okay? But it's really important to listen to the answer. I can't stress that enough. And get your answer, all right? Many times you'll ask a question you know, what, again, what time did you get up this morning? Uh, you know, I, I got up early. I usually, you know, sleep late, but I got up early today. I don't know, you know, exact time. Well, what time was it? You know, was it, can you tell, if you can't tell me exact, was it between 5 a.m. and 6? Whatever your question is, make sure you get the answer. I can't tell you how many times uh, a witness will just not answer your question or they think they have, and especially expert witnesses. They think they're, they're, they can sneak by by coming up with some kind of answer and then just come back. And your adversary may say objection, ask and answered, and you'll say, yeah, that's right, but you know, they didn't answer my question and I'm gonna keep asking it until I get the answer to my question. And you could do readbacks if need be, but you do not leave your deposition until you get the answers to your questions. So make sure they answer your question and keep going until you get an answer. The other thing is let your witness finish answers. Don't talk over them. If they wanna ramble, sit back like this and let them ramble. You can get some good stuff from witnesses that like to talk a lot. Don't say, thanks, you answered my question and move on. Let them talk. See if you get lucky. It happens, believe me. All right? Ask all the W questions. Who, what, why, where, when. I like to think of when you're questioning a witness, be like a curious fifth grader. Ask, oh, really? You, you spoke with that witness? When did you speak with them? Well, why did you speak with them? Well, where did this conversation take place? And what did you talk about? Who was with you? Um, just be curious. That's important. Go into depositions being curious and satiate your curiosity. That's You'll know when you've done a good deposition. Don't be embarrassed to not know something. Don't be embarrassed to ask a question that you don't know an answer to. And don't hide from questions that you're afraid of the answer. That's cross-examination. That's when you lead and you don't ask questions you don't know the answer to, okay? Deposition is when you want to ask things you don't know. They say a term or a phrase. Don't just nod and pretend, oh, I'm going to look stupid if I don't know what that is. Say, what is that? 
because they don't know. You may know it and you're just asking anyway. A lot of times I'll ask questions. I'll ask them to define things that I think I know. Well, I'm curious how they define it. We may not have the same understanding. Don't be embarrassed. Ask, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar. What does that mean? Or what do you mean by this? Or, you know, can you further explain that? I've never heard that before. Um, I've never heard that phrase. Don't be afraid to get an answer to a question that you're afraid of, that you may not like. If you're afraid they're going to blame your client for calling them out and saying really bad things to them in a, before a fight, don't not ask them. Say, what did my client, you, you know, you said that my client caused it. What did they do? What did they say? Oh, they cursed me out. They did this. They did that. Anything else? No, no, no. Anything else? Ask it. Get all the stuff out because you don't want to be surprised by it at trial. That's another reason you do a deposition, to find out the bad stuff, uh, to find out if it's an expert, their opinions on things, how they're going to come in and ruin your case. Uh, you want to find everything out at a deposition so that way you better understand how to deal with it uh, in your case, it may affect the settlement posture, may affect how you approach the witness at trial and your questioning. It may affect future depositions or discovery that you need. So ask away, ask open-ended questions. Ask as much until you feel that you've gotten the answer that you want, all right? Now, finally, when you're done with your deposition, don't expect to hit a home run. Don't expect the witness to say, it was my fault. It was my fault. You're right, Mr. Smiley. I know. I know. I, you, you got me. You wore me down. I did it. I blew the light. I wasn't watching where I was going. Um, yes, I operated on the wrong limb. You know, it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. I think once in the history, the, you know, almost 60 year history of my firm, we once had a doctor admit that they departed uh, from the accepted standard of care. That was it. Um, you, you're not going to get it, most likely, okay? So don't expect a home run. Witnesses, if they're properly prepared, are not going to give you what you're hoping for in a home run, all right? Don't be deflated if that doesn't happen. Don't expect it to happen. Feel good about the fact that you have done a good deposition because you've explored every area, you've closed up loose ends, you've gotten answers to questions that you've wanted, you've learned more than you did beforehand, um, that's when you should feel satisfied that you've done a good job, all right? And if you're an associate and you have to report back to your senior partner, feel good. Yeah, you didn't really give it up, but I covered all the bases. I have explanations. He didn't say why, that he ran a light, but he said, you know, X, Y, and Z. You know, just make sure you get the information that you went into the deposition hoping to get. That's a successful deposition. You know, a good deposition will have meant that you've covered all your points, all right, that you've tied up all loose ends, and it is going to help you either prepare for trial better or evaluate your case better or lead to future discovery. And that's really why we do this. So, Hopefully you picked up maybe one tidbit uh, that you may find useful. I look forward to future CLEs with you where we're really going to get into the weeds uh, where we can talk about how to handle and question a biomechanical engineer in a product liability case or a defendant surgeon in a medical malpractice case, how to prepare for that, how to conduct those depositions. Um, that's a lot of fun. Um, I, I really enjoy doing those depositions, preparing for them, and I'd like to share with you how I do that because it's going to make you a better lawyer because you can pick up new, new, new things and uh, it's gonna ultimately help your clients and help our profession. That's what I'm here to do. So um, 
next month is going to be part five. Uh, we're moving along how to litigate a personal injury case in the series. Hopefully you will join me. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, come join a live webinar, okay? It's going to be uh, the first Wednesday of May, Cinco de Mayo, May 5th. We'll be done in time for you to go out and uh, party and celebrate Cinco de Mayo. Uh, we're going to talk about pretrial disclosures and gearing up for trial. We're working our way closer to a trial and wrapping up the series, post-trial stuff. So I hope you will join me then. Um, if you have not listened to my podcast, The Mentor ESQ, check it out, especially season two, episode two. That's Michelle's, uh, she's trying to get up there. She keeps asking me her stats. She wants to be the top rated episode. I'm so close. Come on, people. Season two, episode two. Go check it out. Today's the day. I'm going to take the top spot. Uh, she's close. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a lot of CLEs where you can get credit through the podcast. There's also just some really good interviews with fellow attorneys. Some of you listen uh, and, and are, are participating right now, but our fellow lawyers have some fascinating stories to share. And we've got amongst us in our profession, some real, real interesting people. Uh, and it's nice to hear the backstories from all of us because we're not just lawyers. You know, we, we are individuals that bring a lot to the table and it's really fun to explore that. I enjoy exploring that in my podcast. So with that, uh, let's get to the Q and A's. All right. Um, I'm going to try and hit on all these. Again, I don't know everything. I'm going to do the best I can to answer. If you are participating in the Q&A and you uh, may have an answer, uh, drop it in the chat. All right. So we're going to get through them. Um, first one, what's the difference between preparing and impermissible coaching? All right. Um, again, I touched on it. Tell your client they can't lie. Tell your client if they don't know something, they can give themselves the benefit of the doubt if they think they know what happened. Um, try and be as creative as you can without um, suggesting something that's wrong. Never lie. Never ask them to lie. Um, and, you know, just work on it as best as you can. Find the weaknesses and figure out how to get around that. And if ultimately it's really something really hard, then you want to prepare them for how to handle when they're asked about it to keep it super short. You may want to object and sometimes a lawyer may not follow up on it and it can slide right by. So um, that takes experience. If you run into an issue, reach out to colleagues or to me to talk it out. Uh, if there's a specific thing that's difficult. Um, I've not heard of the seven right answers to deposition questions. Uh, someone was kind enough to put that um, in here. Uh, T. Trantita. Trantina, thank you so much. Um, read that in the chat, in the Q&A. Uh, I look forward to reading that too. I think that's awesome. Uh, now, the question someone put in saying misdemeanor convictions are admissible, violations are not, felonies certainly are. Um, so generally how it works is that they can ask at a deposition, um, have you ever been convicted of a crime? Okay. And your client has to answer yes or no. Um, they can ask what it was, what the charges were. They can ask if they've served time in prison. Um, they can't really get into the nitty gritty. And this is something where if uh, your client has committed a crime or if you know the witness you're questioning has committed a crime, uh, you want to be careful about what you ask. Uh, you can certainly push the limit if you want, if you're the questioner, if you're the defender, have the case law and be ready to shut it down, that they can't get into everything uh, and let them make their motion. Uh, to get more information or for a further deposition. Um, I believe um, 
only certain misdemeanors are admissible. I would check on that. Uh, violations certainly are not. Whether someone's been arrested or not is not an appropriate question for a deposition. Ask them to rephrase it so you can request, you can ask if they've been convicted of a crime. Prep your client to answer yes or no. Prep them and help them find out what the charge was. Yes or no. Did you plea? Yes or no. What did you plea to? Did you serve time? Yes or no. Um, basically what the underlying circumstances were. That's where prep comes into play. Keep it short and sweet. Okay, really old convictions uh, may not be admissible at trial. There's a difference between what they can ask about at a deposition uh, as to what's admissible at trial. Um, there's a lot more that can be asked at deposition. At trial, even if they've been convicted of a felony um, and served time, uh, depending on what the charge was, when it was, you can make a preliminary and limine motion to preclude that from coming in at the time of trial. So um, it's not a big deal. Just make sure you're prepared for it. Let it come out in the best way that you can shape it and then always deal with the pretrial, all right? Um, if someone asserts the fifth in response to a, a prior conviction question, um, that's not really a proper a Fifth Amendment assertion. Uh, that's Fifth Amendment is preserving your right from incrimination. So if you're asking them about an active thing, ongoing or a pending charge perhaps, um, they can assert the fifth, but they can't assert the fifth upon answering something if they've had a prior conviction. It just doesn't apply. Um, they certainly can answer uh, yes or no to a conviction. Again, the fifth would be technically about giving information that would ultimately lead to them possibly incriminating themselves. So it's more substance of what they give. So just try and break it down to yes or no's and if they fail to answer the question, mark it for a ruling and bring it to a head with the judge. Um, sometimes, by the way, you can work this out with your adversary. You could say, listen, I don't want to have to get the judge on the phone. What will you let the witness answer to? Will you at least let them answer yes or no? Will you let them answer yes to a felony, yes to a misdemeanor? Sometimes we as adversaries can work this all out. Again, this is part of the courtesy we give to each other. Remember, the adversary is doing their job of trying to protect the client, and they, they shouldn't and give up more than they have to. You are trying to get as much information, but maybe there's a middle ground you guys can agree on that can satisfy both of you, where you can get some answers that'll satisfy you, and the defense, uh, the defense attorney of that witness uh, feels that they've protected their client's rights and you haven't been allowed to ask more than you're really entitled to. Okay. Um, all right, so this is a good question. Um, how do you handle it when you're in a deposition and when a client's being asked, uh, you're defending your client and your adversary's asking about prior accidents, sometimes like 20 years ago, and they don't know the specifics. Here's how I handle that. First of all, always ask your client about prior accidents, prior lawsuits, um, prior injuries to the body parts or systems that are at issue in your case. Uh, and then the witness should answer those questions, even if it's 20 years ago. I mean, you know, and it's the same thing people ask me, you know, do I have to give an authorization for something from 15 or 20 years ago? But look, if the plaintiff is claiming a back injury that needed spinal fusion, and 20 years ago, there was an MRI showing a severely herniated disc in the same area, and there's a record of a recommendation for surgery, um, 
that's going to be relevant. It just is. And even if it's 20 years ago, they're allowed to ask about it because uh, that may have bearing on the merits of the, of the causation argument and the damages in the case. Now, if all you're talking about is a back injury and your plaintiff claims that they remember that they broke their, um, their big toe on their left foot, um, you know, 25 years ago, uh, playing sports in college, um, I'd say forget it. So you're not getting anything for that and you're not going to waste our time in, in questioning. You know, there has to be, whether it's in a deposition or in a discovery demand, a good faith basis for asking for something. And if it can arguably be related to an area or an injury with the same body part or function in the, the case at issue, then they're, they're allowed to ask it. So that's, that's how it handled that situation. Uh, okay. What are the types of questions that I object to? I'll object to questions that I find confusing to me, um, that either don't make sense or I think may uh, muddy up the record. For example, um, if they're asking about an injury and then they say, well, you know, you know, have you been able to, you know, play golf? Uh, but they don't say before or after the accident or since the surgery or whatever it is, I may interrupt and I'll just say, objection, are you talking about any time uh, before or after? Can you please give a time frame to your question? Then I move my hand down and I ask them to rephrase. So I like to object to questions like that. Um, so it's usually if it's two questions in one, if it's just not clear to me, or if I think it may not be clear whether they're asking about something before or after the incident in question, that's what I'll do. So it's really important that we all pay really close attention when our clients are being questioned and our witnesses are being questioned. Don't sit there and look at your phone or your email or look off uh, and wander off and into something else and daydream. Uh, it's important. You're sitting there for a reason. Uh, you're sitting there to make sure things run smoothly. You have a clean record. God forbid your witness says something that they think they're answering a question that isn't clear. That could be a, create a big problem at the time of trial or in your case when you go to settle. Oh, they said this. And you're saying, well, you that they meant before it. And they're like, well, they didn't say before it. And then you say, well, you didn't say what time frame. Well, you didn't object to it. So that's when I object. You want to have a clean record. And of course, if it's something that is, you know, really off the wall or really nasty or really wrong, um, you know, then, then I'll object. But otherwise I try and just let it go. Um, it doesn't have to be a perfect question. If it's harmless or it's background or you're moving along, get things moving. That's what I suggest. Um, all right. Someone here is saying that they give a pro forma deposition transcript to a witness to help prepare them. So they get an idea of what's going on. Um, you know, I think that's a nice idea. You know, anything you can do and you can ask your client, you know, would they like to read something? Would that make them feel better? It's a great idea. Um, next question. Uh, where a liability was previously granted on summary judgment in a motor vehicle accident case, can the defense ask specific liability related questions at the deposition? So I would generally say no. Um, usually motions are made after the plaintiff's deposition. So what I like to do is at least make sure that when a deposition of my client is done, 
I say, all right, we're all done here. Um, and if and that there's no reservation of rights, this deposition is now concluded. Um, that way, if a further deposition occurs, like another injury happens or a surgery where my adversary is entitled to a follow-up deposition or a new counsel takes over the case and comes in for a follow-up and they want to go back and ask questions, I point to it and I say, no, you're done. Uh, no more liability questions. Um, now, if there's a basis for it in, in the question that you asked, where there's summary judgment on liability, sometimes a liability question can bear on damages. You know, how bad was the impact? What speed were you going? So if it's questions that arguably can relate to causation uh, of the damages, then I would think that that's fair game. So it really depends on the question is how I would look at it. Um, how do you silence an attorney that keeps objecting as to form, et cetera? All right, so this is known as the pain in the ass attorney. What do you do with a pain in the ass attorney that just keeps objecting, objecting, objecting? Um, what you do is you make a statement on the record and you say, counsel, you've been objecting, uh, I believe inappropriately, and it's interrupting the flow of my questions. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the form of the last question that I ask. Uh, if there is, please tell me specifically what the problem is with my question. See what they say, all right? Uh, have a read back of the question. Maybe you're asking horrible questions and they're entitled. You don't know how to properly phrase a question. Uh, better make sure that you know how to properly phrase a question. And if you can and you are and you have been and they keep objecting, say, you know, this is getting to the point counsel where it's obstructive. Um, I'm asking that you stop. And if you don't, I'm gonna get the judge on the line. And then you get the judge on the line and you ask for a readback of all the objections and let the judge deal with it. That's how I'd handle it. All right, someone is asking me for a rule number again. Uh, the only rule I think I've cited is the um, uniform court rules that uh, mimic the federal calls for notice of deposition of a corporate witness. Witness That's part of the materials. It is a uniform rule part 200, rule 202.20-d. Okay. What do you do about a defense attorney who's asking generic medical questions? Have you ever been to an orthopedist prior to the accident? Have you ever had an MRI prior to the accident? What prescription medications are you taking? Do I object or do I allow them? I allow those questions. It's either yes or no. And then if they are, if yes, they have been to an orthopedist, they're going to say for what? And see, you know, if it's related to the X or not. Same with an MRI. They're certainly allowed to ask about all the medications that the, your client's currently taking. That's all permissible. Um, while you can't coach a witness, someone's asking me, uh, the witness is having difficulty with the right way to describe something. Can you suggest clear wording uh, for what you think the witness is trying to say? I think that's perfectly acceptable in a prep session. If your client is having a hard time articulating themselves, you might want to say, well, do you mean that it's like, can you describe it, even though you say you can't really describe the pain? Some people will describe it as a throbbing pain or a sharp pain or a pain like uh, a nail going into you or pulsing or a hammer hitting it. Um, so yeah, there's nothing wrong with giving suggestions. You're not saying that is what their pain is. You're saying, is this what you're referring to? Maybe I can help you. So you can certainly help your witness come up with adjectives, adverbs, uh, ways to describe things. And I encourage you to do that if you have a witness that is not good at articulating uh, what they're trying to say, help them, help them with that. Um, 
Someone's asking if the rule I just cited, the 202.20D, does it uh, include the city of New York and other municipalities? Good question. I don't know the answer. Uh, I'd have to look it up. Unless it specifically excludes them, uh, then I would argue it certainly applies to them. Uh, it's the, the city is a corporation, uh, I believe. It's a municipality. Municipalities, there's no reason why I think it should not apply to them. Uh, but if anyone's on there uh, on the webinar, Corp Council, uh, if you have any thoughts on whether you'd object to that and what the basis, please drop it in the chat. I certainly plan on using 202.20D in my city cases. So um, I can't tell you what my experience has been yet. I don't think it's been litigated yet, uh, but I would read my reading of the statute, as I recall, does not preclude that. Um, okay. Is there an obligation to allow both sides an opportunity to review and, if necessary, correct the transcript for deposition? The answer is yes. Uh, the way that it works, and I believe it's in the usual steps and in the rules of CPLR and in the federal rules, uh, is that at the when the transcript is complete and received, the questioner who's requested that witness is obligated at no fee to provide a copy to uh, the counsel uh, for that witness, to provide to that witness, to review the uh, witness's transcript, and the witness needs to look at it, and there's an errata sheet on the back. They have a certain amount of time to sign the errata sheet. If there are, sometimes it's just typed in wrong. Sometimes they want to change the substance of their question, of their answer to the question. They put it on the errata sheet, then they sign and notarize that sheet, and then they send it back with the signed uh, page of the deposition transcript. And that process needs to happen. Uh, otherwise, if you send the transcript to the witness, if they don't have a lawyer, you send it right to the witness, to the law firm for that witness, and you don't get it back within a certain period of time prescribed by statute, uh, then it's deemed that uh, they didn't want to change it and everything uh, is accurate. And that gets to when you impeach them at the time of trial, you, you use that opportunity and we'll talk about that when we have some trial skill CLEs on impeachment. Um, what are your thoughts on waiving defendants EBT for run of the mill rear end? Um, you know, if you're the plaintiff asking that, I would never waive a defendant's EBT for a rear end uh, because they can come up with an emergency excuse. They could say, yeah, you know, uh, a small child ran out in front of me and I swerved and that's why I rear ended you. Uh, you know, you need to lock it down. The only time I'd waive it is if there's a concession of liability. So what I do, I have a case now, a trucking accident case where, um, where I said, listen, you know, are you, you're going to waive liability. Your tractor trailer rear-ended my client. It's pretty clear. Reports, everything, statements by the witness. Uh, they didn't waive liability. So I did the deposition. I locked it down. Then I told them, you're either going to concede liability or I'm going to move for summary judgment. And they conceded liability. Uh, but the only time I would waive a defendant's deposition where the defendant is the rear-ending vehicle would be if you had a concession of liability and if you weren't concerned about causation, again, you were going to want testimony about the speed at the time of impact to confirm photographs of the damage. Because if you waive the defendant's deposition and you don't get any of that testimony and you don't get confirmation of the impact in the photos, that could come back to hurt you if the defense then wants to say that the impact didn't cause the injuries. So be aware and be careful with that. Um,
I'm looking through the questions, trying to get through what we can. I'm going to read one out loud. I was recently served with a notice of the expert opposing counsel intends to call a trial. On the list of expert opinion items, they plan to have her testify to facts relevant to the claims in the case. In state court, normally I'd be barred from deposing her. But can I serve a document, demand, and notice an EBT limited to the fact issues they've raised? So that's a really good question. Uh, I certainly, if it's facts, you know, if they're, they, they need to spell out the basis for their facts. So um, you can, if they don't do that, you can object and reject their expert disclosure, their 3101D1 in state court, and say you fail to list the bases upon which your expert is going to you know, rely on uh, what, where they're getting their facts from. If they list their, their, fact, their opinions are based upon the facts contained within these depositions and this report, then that's pretty much it. But if you have reason to believe that they're relying on facts that you haven't heard about, uh, then I'd follow up with defense counsel and say, what's this all about? Followed up in writing, serve a demand for that, um, and then go from there. Uh, you may not be entitled to a deposition. You may have to apply it to the court, especially if the note of issue has been filed and um, and you would have to have a good basis for it. I don't believe you're entitled to it like in federal court. Someone out there can correct me if I'm wrong or if they have another suggestion. Um, okay. Someone saying that they prepare witnesses by using themes of the case because you can't anticipate every question. They come up with themes that can be remembered. Each theme has a proper truthful response for the case. Discuss the themes so that they will re relate to them. Tell them to think of themes and then base the response on those themes. Great. If that resonates with your client, that's something that's really good to do. You know, we all have our own techniques. The idea and the goal is to make sure your client is comfortable. They're informed about what to expect uh, as far as questions are going to be answered in the environment. And they're prepared on how to answer uh, the mundane and the difficult questions. Ah, interesting one. Someone's asking about how you deal with a situation where there's a court interpreter or not a court interpreter, an interpreter uh, for a client that does not speak English. Those are always interesting. And here they're saying uh, where, you know, the deposing attorney and the interpreter are using dirty tricks. So I guess you're running into a situation where a lawyer has their interpreter that they bring along. Uh, usually, though, um, that's not the case, but it's possible. Um, <laughs> then what I would do is, you know, take a break and, and ask if you can have someone who speaks the language as well. Uh, or ask them to, you know, if you think there's something suspicious going on, like you ask a question like, you know, did you injure your left arm? And then the, the witness speaks for like 10 minutes and then the answer is no through the interpreter. Um, and you're running into these kinds of things that you think seem strange or they're not interpreting it properly. Then you got to call them out on it. Go off the record make, you know, make a statement maybe off the record uh, and then put it on the record if you want uh, and say, listen, I don't think you're interpreting accurately. I'd ask you to interpret exactly what I'm asking and exactly what the witness is saying. Do not paraphrase word for word. I want you to interpret that. Um, so if you think there's interruption, if there's tactics like that going on, you got to manage that and deal with that, but definitely call it out. Ah, someone's asking about the chronology I spoke about. I do not
organizing. That is not something that I share at all, and I never would. Uh, that's given them my work product and my cheat sheet. They're only entitled to see what I'm asking about, not how I'm organized and asking my questions. Okay. Great questions, a lot of questions here. So I'm gonna stay with you and try and get through these. For those of you joining us by podcast, the second attendance verification code for today's course is P-O-D, as in pod, two, three, five. Again, that's P-O-D, two, three, five. Ah, someone's asking about time limits on depositions. So there are time limits uh, in state court and in federal court. And some are limited to an amount of hours or amount of days. Um, look it up. Look up time limits. Look up if you're in federal court, individual judges rules on time limits. Um, it gets there's there's a lot of room for debate because, uh, you know, what if the witness didn't come prepared to answer everything? Should your time limit have been reached? Should your time limit have been reached? Uh, if you need more than one witness to handle something, how did the time limits apply? So I've never been told, sorry, but time's up. Um, that's never happened. And it usually doesn't happen. I think as long as you have a legitimate basis, if it just needs more time, you might just have to send a letter to the court and request it uh, or work something out with the defendant uh, or your adversary. But um, there are time limits, so just be aware of it. And usually you can sort that out. I've never had that been a, a real problem that I've been aware of. You can ask leading questions in the deposition, correct? Is getting admissions one of the objectives? Sure. You can ask a leading question, and sure, getting an admission would be great, so go for it. Uh, does a party have a right to depose an expert, such as a plaintiff's expert engineer in state court? Uh, again, I think the rules are in flux and they might be changing. There's definitely someone on the Zoom that knows more about it than me. I can tell you traditionally the answer is no without good cause shown. Um, you're not getting depositions of experts in state court. Of course, you will be getting them and you are required to produce experts and reports in federal court. Uh, generally, I believe you are not entitled to them. Uh, of course, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but if you have good cause to show, then you could do it. One good way to do it is you can make a uh, pretrial uh, fry motion in state court and a Dalbert motion in federal court, which in essence gives you the opportunity to question the witness before trial. So if you think that they uh, are have junk science and you want to rule that out and possibly preclude them, uh, then you make that motion and you request a, a hearing and that would be that would be your opportunity to question them. All right, I'm going to scroll down a little bit more and uh, let's see. If you get a ruling at an EBT, is the ruling subject to appeal? Great question. Um, probably. I don't see why it wouldn't be. Um, and technically, um, I don't think it would be worth it because really if the judge or law clerk allows uh, and requires or orders an answer to a question that it really shouldn't have been, that's going to be handled at the pretrial phase. So it's really someone's not going to uh, appeal that uh, just during discovery to then have it stricken. Uh, that really becomes an issue of whether it's permissible at trial. So if it's that bad that uh, it would be reversed by an appellate court, 
uh, on a ruling on a discovery issue, um, then it would be dealt with appropriately prior to trial is how I think it would play out. Technically, I don't know if you're allowed to. I think technically you are, uh, but it, it's an abuse of discretion. And there's definitely the trend and the goal of uh, rulings is to have as much open discovery as possible and then just keeping stuff out from trial uh, when it's not permissible evidence. So that's probably how that would play out. Um, all right, I think that is where I'm gonna wrap it up. I thank you all so much for staying with me uh, through this CLE. Again, I encourage you to come back next month for part five. We've got three more to go before part seven. It's gonna be great. And uh, I encourage you to listen to my podcast, please. Uh, and if you are listening to the podcast, uh, please continue to um, like it, share it with your friends. It's free, the podcast, folks. It's everywhere where you get your podcast, your iPhone, Spotify, Google, all of that. And uh, uh, I hope you join me uh, on future CLEs. And again, I love the community we're building here. So I ask you to keep it going. Stay in touch with each other. Please reach out to me. Email me. Call me. We'll do Zooms. Uh, I've been referring cases to people that reach out to me. I've been getting some referrals on cases. Uh, it's really great having this community and I'm enjoying it. And from everyone I've been speaking with, they're enjoying this as well. Thank you to all of you who contributed through the Q&A to help further educate us as a profession and uh, good luck at your next deposition. And I look forward to seeing you all next month.